What's going on? This is Justin, your host here at Embodied. Uh, we're so excited to bring you another episode of the podcast. This week, we're going to be speaking with Fanon Kafleski, who uh, is uh, at the was at the time of this interview the uh, co- coordinator of the African American Resource Center at Cal State uh, University Fullerton, and so we're going to be talking a little about her job there. Uh, we're talking about her parents um, and their immigration story from Eritrea and just a lot of different um, things that go with that. And then also her work on campus um, with students. And so it's really a, a great episode uh, for those of you who are educators and interested in education. Uh, remember, if you're interested in the podcast for more information, you can go uh, on Facebook and find our group, or you can find us on Twitter at EmbodiedCast, or shoot us an email at EmbodiedCast at gmail.com. Thank you for your support as always, and yeah, let's start the show. All right, Fanon, who are you? Um, so I'm a daughter of uh, Eritrean immigrants to the U.S., and I think I'm also a very proud black woman and um, an educator. I think that's a really important part of who I am and how I identify. Um, I'm also from a working class uh, background. Um, I think I also identify as like um, someone who English was a second language to. I think that that has a huge impact on how I view the world and how I'm intentional and how I behave in the world. Um, and I also feel a deep connection to, um, who I am in terms of a child of God and finding very much so purpose in my life because of that, um, belief and faith. Um, and I think that that has a lot to do with just how my parents embodied faith, um, in terms of like immigrating here and being separated for a long time. Um, and so family and faith, um, I think have, um, raised me to who I am. And then I think also in my purpose in the world. Yeah. Tell me about your parents' story a little bit. I'd be, I'd love to hear that. Yeah. So my parents are actually arranged to be married, uh, have been together 53 years now. And, um, yeah, my mom met my dad when she was five years old and was told this is the man you're going to marry. And were married when she, uh, she got married to my father when she was 12, uh, which I can never even imagine. <laughs> mm, yeah. Um, and, you know, got married and uh, had their first child when my mom was 17 and um, they're from Eritrea. And so uh, our country was in war from uh, 1961 through 1991. And, uh, Forever, right? Can I? Can you tell people about that if they don't know about the war? Yeah, so Eritrea was colonized by the Italians, and once the Italians left, um, there was kind of a Western power decision that Eritrea and Ethiopia would be one place, one nation. Um, and so Eritreans uh, organized to um, gain their sovereignty again, and uh, the war was 30 years long. And um, my dad was pretty actively engaged in politicizing the Eritrean community and wanting to really fight for uh, our independence again. 
And so um, when my mom was pregnant, I think with my sixth sibling, uh, my parents decided that it was best for my dad to flee um, the country. And uh, of course, at the time, my parents didn't know if they were having a boy or a girl. And so my dad said, uh, if it's a girl, you need to name her Amina. And if it's a boy, name him Be'imnet, uh, which both um, translate to with faith or she had faith um, that God would reconnect the family together uh, at some point in a more safe environment. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so uh, my dad fleed uh, Eritrea and then ended up in Italy and was there for five years um, before they were reunited in, in Italy. Um, and so I think like always hearing that story growing up was like, okay, God, it's, God is going to handle it all. And I think that um, in every circumstance, my parents kind of refer back to that story or just like what the family had gone through and um, just the reassurance that they have that things have been handled in the past. And there's no doubt that it will continue to be handled um, because of his will and his purpose for us. Hmm. Was it a boy or a girl? Boy. Okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now we all fight over who's going to use the girl name uh, for our future children. Oh, yeah. Because that'd be a powerful powerful name mm -hmm. yeah and so how did they end up in the states yeah so my um dad my old, oldest sister is my dad's daughter and um her and her family had come to the u.s prior to my family and so she uh, my parents actually wanted to stay in europe but she was able to find a church to sponsor my family as refugees and um, got them to be able to come to the U.S. and they chose lovely San Diego. So we got really lucky there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so I think the other thing is that um, each of us are named after what our family was going through at the time. And so my name means hope or like a moral hope. And um, I was the first born here in the U.S. And so mm. I think my parents were hoping for a stable life and uh, a safe life and uh, so that's why my, that I have the name that I do. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And do you connect with that in terms of the way in which you see your life unfolding? And Yeah, so uh, I'm an educator now, and I think that a lot of what I do is um, giving students hope that they can get out of their current circumstances and giving them access to the resources they need to kind of identify opportunities to do so and um kind of identify the challenges that they're having, what they would like to see differently, and then connecting them to like their passions and therefore their hope for something different. Mm -hmm. And so as you grew up being, you know, the first child born here in the States, when did you realize that you were any of these identities? Like you can pick one, but um, maybe there's multiple ones that you can kind of think back to and say, oh yeah, like that's the moment when I realized I was blank. Yeah, I remember very like vividly having conversations with my um, my dad and my brother, like growing up, um, I think this was like maybe elementary, like maybe in the sixth grade during that time and really identifying as Eritrean, but not as black. And, um, and I don't know why I felt such a need to distinguish the two. And I didn't. I think that it may have been because of what I was seeing in media and um, assumptions people would always make about black Americans. And I wanted to be different from that. And, um, and I just, I don't know why I would have these like very intense arguments with my 
siblings and my dad. And when I went to college, I went to UC San Diego. And at the time, it was um, 0.7% black. And uh, yeah, it was just like the most intense situation I had ever been in because I felt like uh, people had a very narrow view of blackness and would always kind of use me to be the spokesperson for that experience. Mm. And it was so drastically like their response that they were um, assuming I would have was so drastically different because my lived experience was different from the assumptions they were putting on me. Mm. And I think in that moment, it made me really think how much I still had some space for me to think about how I identify and understand myself and then also how I am a black person in America and my identity as part of a diaspora and a um, come like a displaced people and that my experiences were more aligned especially at that particular time in in my life than I had cared to give attention to in the past, Um, which like I think was a pretty intense realization, a very emotional roller coaster of a um, like an identity development stage in my life. And I don't think I'd be who I am today or understand myself the way that I do now had it not been for that uh, experience of just kind of being thrown um, into these situations where people perceived me a certain way and therefore requ- required of me to understand and um, be able to speak to a particular experience. Is there a moment or a story that stands out that illustrates that? Yeah. Um, my freshman year, we take a writing class at UCSD in, in the Thurgood Marshall College around race and social identity development. And I don't remember what the like specific topic was for that day in lecture, but I just remember like all eyes shifting to me for a response. And um, I'm sure it had something to do with like a Supreme Court case um, early on in American history of like who I who was able to identify um, as white or as black and and the access to certain rights that they would have because of that identity. And I just remember being like, I have no clue. Like nobody look at me. (laughs) Um, And I think also realizing that the professor was very ill-equipped to handle that situation. Yeah. Tell tell me more about that. I think um, throughout my experience, there was times where I felt like I had to step up in the classroom in ways that I don't think was appropriate as a student to have to do like, just uh, assumptions being made and professors kind of just letting those assumptions go by and Mm. not feeling as a first generation college student empowered to be able to speak to that without disrespecting the faculty member and then also not ostracizing yourself for having those views. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And I think that especially because of where I was in my identity development, I don't think I was ready to be able to, I wasn't equipped to be able to respond to some of the things I heard in the classroom um, and I and I also remember like my second semester or quarter, um, the subject was justice, and we looked at Supreme Court cases. And I remember looking at Brown versus Board of Education, and um, that there being like very explicit language about like part of diversity and the rec- and integration of 
of classrooms is so that people wouldn't have to feel like they experience it being a spokesperson. Hmm. And here I am sitting in the classroom feeling like that's exactly what I'm doing, even though reading these cases is telling me that that's unconstitutional or should not exist in the classrooms and being like, what do I do with this like um, contradiction that I'm like actually living in right now? Hmm. Um, hmm. And just being really like, okay, well, what do I do with this now? Yeah. And where do I, where do I fit? Mm-hmm. Why am I teaching the class? Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> As a person of color, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. Um, did that play into your social interactions outside of the classroom as well? Yeah, I think I was really um, thirsty to find like a space of folks who can understand that experience and help me process it because I felt like um, my RA couldn't really um, help me through that. And I don't think the faculty member could really understand what I was experiencing. And so I feel like I was on a hunt to find other students who felt like they were being tokenized or, um, having this, like, where do I fit in within this identity of blackness that maybe I didn't understand before. Um, and then that's like how I got involved in the black student union, because that was a common experience that students were having. And I felt like I finally had found a place that can help me process and think about that in productive ways rather than just like, oh, I'm sorry that you feel that way. Yeah. And so as you went through all of this, what role did spirituality play or religion uh, or your faith for you as you kind of navigated, you know, these difficult spaces um, socially, educationally, uh, et cetera, et cetera? Mm hmm. Um, I think I was very lucky to find like a group of black women who um, actually had an organization called Sisters in Christ um, and how much of a support they were for each other. And they were for us first year students. And I think like hearing their own um, experiences and then seeing like how those experiences paralleled my experiences and then seeing like them kind of like uh, quotes scripture that helped them through those challenging moments or how they've now found purpose in what some of those challenging experiences were in acknowledging that they have felt and seen like um, their like kind of life purpose being revealed to them throughout the, the experience in college. And I think, um, I, I don't think I, I had seen anything of purpose at that point, but I was just like, okay, it kind of gave me faith that there will be something that's going to connect all these things together. Um, and I, I think at the end of that year in the summer, so this ended my first year, I applied to be an RA for a summer program uh, because I didn't want to move back home after being <laughs> away. Um, and I had a student in my suite that I was kind of supervising and working with and I remember her going through a pretty traumatic experience and it reminded me of a pretty traumatic experience I had gone through um, in transition from middle school into high school. And um, and I, I remember feeling like, okay, there's a reason why she was assigned to me. Like there's mm. a bigger picture yeah. in terms of like why she happened to be assigned to my suite versus any other RA's suite. And, um, and for me, that was like my first aha, like, okay, there's clearly a bigger plan um, and purpose in my life. And like, this was a little glimpse into it, like that she didn't so happen to be assigned here. There was something that my life has taught me 
that I can then now share with this student to help her get through a pretty tough time in her life. Yeah. And so did you see, were you able to recognize that in the moment or is that something you realized looking back? Um, I think I realized that in the moment um, because it was like a space of a lot of reflection. And so as we were requiring students to kind of make meaning of the experiences we were providing for them, I think as RAs, we were required to do that for our supervisors. And so um, I think as I thought through um, how I felt like I was able to support that student um, in ways that maybe another person wouldn't have been equipped to support her, I was like, okay. Um, I had a calculus teacher who would always say, I don't believe in coincidences. Coincidences, everything is divine intervention. And I felt like that was an example of that divine intervention. Hmm, yeah, yeah. And so what, what, what did spirituality look like in your family in the States growing up uh, in terms of church and life and daily practice and all that stuff? Yeah. Um, my parents are very spiritual. And I guess like what that looked like, um, I guess growing up, it was very... I don't know how to describe it, but it was like, I didn't see value in it, unfortunately. Um, I went to church with my parents every Saturday, and um, it was in Ge'ez, which is a more ancient version of our native language, and I didn't understand anything that was being said. Mm, mm. <laughs> so I just like sat in the back for four hours of my Saturday, not understanding anything that was happening, but seeing how large of a role it played for my family. So I think I understood the value of it, but I didn't have it for myself. Like I didn't have that deep connection to um, why, like just my own faith. Like I just kind of went because my parents told me to, or I would um, say a prayer before eating because my parents trained us to do that. Um, and I think just um, similar to like in Islam where like, if you're Muslim, you always, whenever there's something that you're saying in the future, you say, inshallah. And there's a similar um, statement that my parents would make in things. Or just like if you turn the light on, they, they would say, like, may God give you light, you know. And it's just like mm. those little things um, that I started to realize were connected to their faith, right? It wasn't them just saying it to say it, but that they truly meant it. Um, and I don't. I felt because of the language barrier, it was hard to have that level of spirituality and faith for myself. And I think that um, college was definitely an interesting time for me to then to start like recognizing, well, what does this look like in my own life? And not because my parents want it for me, but because um, I feel like there is a huge part of who I am and gives me purpose in life. Um, yeah, so you mentioned Islam, and uh, I know, I think I heard from a student of mine that there's a pretty cool story about solidarity during the war um, between Christianity and Islam. Uh, could you speak to that a little bit, um, if you know the details about that? Yeah, I don't know too much, um, but I do, like, Eritrea is um, about 50-50 in terms of Christian people who practice it. Christianity and uh, Islam and for me um, being around Muslims has always been a normal thing which is also really interesting considering where we are in the world um, in America but also globally but um, yeah so I think 
I've just always seen an ability to come together as a community because of our sense of identity and how people work together to kind of reach independence as a country. And so um, I guess differences of how people practice their faith um, have never really affected me more so like that we all have a faith and that that grounds us in the way that we need to be grounded. And, um, and I also think like this idea of like, at the end of the day, we're all like humans, right? And like humanity is the goal, um, I think. Yeah. So what can we learn from the solidarity and, you know, that we see in those spaces? Mm -hmm. I just, I find a lot of beauty in how people choose to ground themselves and feel um, connected to the overall world and their purpose in it. And um, I actually was almost a convert in college. <laughs> mm. And uh, it was because I was hanging around the Muslim students uh, a lot because I was involved in um, Students for Justice in Palestine. And um, I felt very connected to um, the liberation and uh, advocacy of Palestinians because I remember reading Eritrean um, Liberation Front like documents and them being able to like um, very eloquently like um, state that they're anti-imperialism and anti-Zionism and um, I just felt connected to the Palestinian movement and like BDS and all of those things and so um, I got to work very closely with Muslim students and so I was um, an active member of some of the things that they would do and I just remember like Islam being such a beautiful way of life. And um, I remember being really touched by a speaker they had on campus, and I can't remember the imam's name, but him talking about how like protest and like political action was like a um, an act of worship because you are proclaiming the humanity of oftentimes disadvantaged people and communities mm -hmm. and being like, wow, okay, like, I would have never made that connection um, until that moment, like that advocating for and resisting oppression and being for the masses of people was something that could be seen as spiritual. Hmm. Um, and I think because I was involved in the activist um, world in college, I was like, okay, well, this is also me being aligned to my spiritual foundation. And um, who I feel like we're called to be. Mm, yeah. I mean, I hear you saying also that your father was very political and spiritual. Mm -hmm. They weren't separate. And so um, am I right in assuming that that continued in the States or did your father kind of leave the political activism uh, once you came uh, to the state or to Italy and then this, to the States? Yeah. I think that my parents um, and I don't, I haven't figured out the kind of reasoning behind it, but um, I think my parents really wanted us to invest in this idea of American dream. And so really shielded us from some of the thoughts and perspectives they had on um, just America and the Western world, because they wanted us to be so embedded in the American dream that we like bought into it. Right. And got to a point where then I guess in college is when my parents 
um, began to be more open about their political views and stances on things um, because I think that they felt like we've now formulated our own perspectives and then now we can engage in conversation um, and that, you know, we've also achieved at a certain um, alignment to the American dream where they felt like, okay, at this point we can engage in cr critical conversation without um, them feeling like they were removing us from the opportunity to um, kind of strive within a system that maybe they disagreed with. So did you end up being um, surprised by their views or did you kind of say, oh yeah, that makes sense. Or, you know, what was that experience like to find out what they thought yeah. um, as an adult? Uh, but I mean, it's still in college. I mean, I remember being in college and feeling like uh, an adult, but not yet an adult mm -hmm. or still a little bit shaky, yeah. you know, mm -hmm. as compared to even now. Um, so what was that like for you? Yeah. I think I just was like, uh, I think the first time my parents kind of revealing and mostly my dad, like um, his political stances on like capitalism and imperialism. I was just like, oh, my gosh, dad, like, why did you keep this from me like all this time? It, and I also think that like at that where I was developmentally, I wouldn't have been ready for that. Um, but I also acknowledge like, man, this is like so many missed opportunities for deep conversation uh, that we could mm. have had. Um, but I think um, as I learned more about like the history and the struggle of um, the Eritrean Liberation Front, I think I was able to kind of see how what now my parents were revealing as their ideologies about the world aligned to the foundations of that liberation movement. Um, but that I didn't know enough about the liberation movement to be able to have made some assumptions about my parents' political beliefs. Um, and I think that because of that, I didn't I saw my parents' faith and not their politics um, until I was in college. And I mm. think now acknowledging like just comments that my parents make or understandings that they have, and I'm just like, oh my gosh, like I, I felt like I had no clue that they understand that they understood the world for what it really is um, at the depth that they do um, until like way later. And mm, I, yeah, they were seeing stuff and you were like, whoa. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's like, where has all this been? Like, why didn't you feel comfortable talking to us about this? And I think it was really just so that we would feed into the American dream. Mm, and do you think that that was what happened with you and your siblings? Or what do you think? Yeah, I think most of us got... Um, our like political beliefs and ideologies and our kind of desires for social justice while we were in college. I don't think it um, was as embedded in how we were raised, um, at least not intentionally. And I think going to college um, and being exposed to a bunch of things and being able to kind of process our own perspectives um, and then coming home and then that being validated of and not necessarily being where it was initiated. Hmm. And so as you kind of reflect back on, you know, the religious system that you grew up in and Christianity um, in a very specific branch of Christianity, um, what were the strengths and weaknesses of how they dealt with identity, things like race, gender, sexual orientation, class, ability, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. Um, well... I do think my parents don't think that um, 
um, other than heterosexuality, that there is no other sexuality that exists in the world, and that this it's like a a Western world thing. Like gay people don't exist in Eritrea. Like that mm. doesn't happen. Um, which you know I remember very um, fondly. Like my da- dad, I guess fondly wouldn't be the word, but I remember very vividly. Like my dad picking me up in two thousand and eight to vote. Um, in the election and him picking me up from college and driving me so that I can uh, vote in our local neighborhood. And um, I remember at that point, like I was very open-minded. I had been in college for a year, you know, I, I know the world now. <laughs> right. And, you're, you're ready. You're ready. <laughs> um, and the whole drive um, to uh, the precinct was like him telling me about how, um, just like how like gay people shouldn't be able to get married. And I just remember being so angry, like in the car, Mm. like I know how I'm going to vote dad and you're not going to tell me how, you know, but I don't think I felt like because authority and respecting your elders is such an important part of our culture that I wasn't going to say that to him. Yeah. I was just going to go in and vote how I felt (laughs) like I needed to vote. Right. And then deal with the, the talk on the drive um, home. But yeah, I just, I don't know that, that that's something that we for sure see differently um, to this day. And I think in terms of race, um, I think that like, it's always been very clear to me that my parents um, very much so believe that there's like uh, a racial divide because of how man has created systems and structures that disadvantage uh, certain groups from others and um, always telling us that like even when we brought up hardships like at home and being reminded that like that's not how God intended it to be and we as as people have created these things and um, that to always have faith that if it's God's will he will make it happen and um, yeah so I, I I don't know that like there was any explicit conversations other than like around gay marriage, um, around all of those things. But I think my parents always having uh, an understanding in terms of like the world is the way it is because we made it this way and this is not how God designed it to be Hmm. and what our role is in advocating to make it more of what God would like it to be. Yeah, so I just I just remember I wanted to return to this. Um, going back to your college days, you talked about how you almost became a convert. Um, how come you didn't? Uh, I think I remember coming home uh, during one of the breaks and talking to my eldest sister, um, and then I think maybe one of my cousins, and them also sharing that they were all almost converts uh, in college, and then um, realizing that they didn't go through with it and so um I thought like okay well maybe this is just a phase that I'm going through like much how they were referring to it as a phase yeah um and I think also for me developmentally realizing that I can appreciate Islam for what it is and not necessarily it have to be my religion Hmm. and I think that um that was just like where I needed to have that developmental like realization. Um, and I think also one of the challenges is that like, because my parents' tribe is very much so cr- a Christian tribe, mm-hmm. um, 
a lot of our Eritrean kind of traditions are religiously oriented. And I think just recognizing that that would be an interesting, yet very different challenge uh, in family dynamics. Yeah. What are some of those traditions that would have been difficult? Yeah. Um, well, we celebrate a number of uh, saints and um, a lot of like fasting around uh, f- uh, saints and then like Easter. Um, and I think also recognizing that I had I have an older sister who's Jehovah Witness. And um, because so much of our family traditions are around Eritrean um, traditions that are faith based, um, she kind of was like absent in a lot of those spaces because of her choice of um, how she practices her spirituality. And so I think I was also fearful of like what that would mean for me in my family dynamic. Mm, yeah. And not being able to participate fully mm-hmm. in those moments. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and so did you ever tell your parents that you were thinking about it? Oh, that's a good question. Um, they're listening now, so you better don't tell, don't tell a lie. Yeah, um, I don't know that I did, um, but I think like I have an Islam one-on-one book, and I have copies of the Quran, um, and so I'm sure that they've like come across them before in my house. But um, I don't know that I ever told them. I think they would probably be devastated. I mean, like even though our country like um, very proudly. Um, claim you know makes claim that we are a Christian and Muslim country and that we can coexist and that, yeah, it, that we, it, we make it work yeah exactly but I don't know that um, just because of family traditions I feel like they would still have some type of reaction towards yeah. that again thank you for listening um, uh, if you want to find out more about the podcast embodiedcast at gmail.com is the best way to get in touch with us send us an email also check out our twitter handle at um embodied at embodied cast and yeah thank you for listening and we'll see you next week embodied is produced by justin campbell with production assistance from carlos antonio delgado jason jenkins delisa perry and Philip Yaw Dumfey. So until next time, peace.